Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Elia Winters. She is a romance writer. Specifically, she writes erotic steampunk romance. But she also reviews sex toys. We talk about all of that and a whole lot more, including building a log cabin and writing a female-female romance involving World War II Women Army Corps pigeon wranglers. I think this is not your average podcast. Um, if you agree, subscribe or send me a note at isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place on that website to drop me a line. Um, you can review the podcast and also Get a hold of Abe's Muffins and put them in your face. Abe's Muffins makes allergen-free muffins that taste great. They come in blueberry, chocolate chip. They have brownies. What are you waiting for? Just get them, okay? And now, just listen to me speaking with the lovely Elia Winters. Elia Winters, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, as you know, I don't really know you. Um, I know you through some interactions we had on Twitter, which is how I've met some of my favorite people in the world, whether it's Ben Dreyer, who uh, people should know as the New York Times bestselling author of Ben Dreyer's English, or Jamie Schler, who's like a sister to me who lives in France. Uh, her handle is Life's a Feast. I feel like Twitter is one of those double-edged swords. And I try to remember the good things. What's your, how do you feel about that before we get into who you are? Just like Twitter is like a, what do you think of Twitter? You know, I, I really like Twitter, but I appreciate the comparison to a double-edged sword. It is, um, it is hard to avoid certain types of content on Twitter because of retweets and because of um, just the nature of the medium as a fast-flowing social network outlet because I have a, a really big following on there and I follow a lot of people. Um, you kind of never know what you're going to get. I'm always trying to curate my timeline on Twitter, but it's a little bit of a crapshoot when you're diving in. And sometimes if there's really serious things happening in the world, I just have to stay away because it's too brutal. I stayed away in the days leading up to the election last year. And sometimes you just, you just need a break. But overall, as a platform, I enjoy it. It's so fun getting to know people. I've gotten to, I think most of my professional contacts I've made through Twitter and that's really fun. I, I feel like you're exactly on point. I learned a lot about the term self-care as a result of social media. I mean, look, I'm 59 years old and I've had all sorts of life experiences, but I really got that sometimes the best thing you can do is leave the room. You're not going to change anybody's mind. And it's not worth, you know, arguing in real life with drunk people or racist people or whatever. You know, it's not fun and it's not productive. And some people do everything from muting or blocking people to taking a hiatus to what have you. So, yeah, uh, you don't need to have the holidays with somebody else's drunk uncle. You can just do what you need to do. So on that note, I want to back up a second and just say, first of all, um, I know that you currently live, I mean, it's out. I'm not outing you in this way. You live in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. For people who don't know, it's a, it's a fascinating place because there are some amazing universities there. Smith College is around there. UMass Amherst is there. For serious nerds, you know that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were born there. Uh, for people who don't know that, the right, you're throwing up your hands. You didn't know that. They started as I an did underground. did not know that. Yeah, before they were very commercial, they started as an underground comic. See, I'm throwing this out there now so the super nerds get that I have the cred with that. Um, so just a little sprinkling of that dust. But 
although you live there, you also lived a lot of your life in the third world country of Florida. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of disrespect for Florida. My 96-year-old mother lives there. I haven't seen her in a year and a half, thanks to the former president, because he covered up some things about COVID. Oh, yeah, I went there, people. If you're upset with me, go to isthatreallylegal.com. Leave me a message. I doubt you're listening to me, if that upset you. But um, I, I actually got COVID in March because I was in Madrid with my wife, came back, got really sick. Nobody knew what this was. Um, and then when they said it, my wife, Holly, said, oh, you had this. Anyway, long story short, because of the, it wasn't until President Biden, Vice President Harris came, we've, we're getting vaccines. I have one in, one to go, and then I'm going to go down to that godforsaken place, Florida, and visit my mom. Anyway, so you're from Florida. I made that about me. It's the patriarchy. Uh, anyway, um, so where I saw from your bio, you were from Massachusetts and then exiled to Florida and then fought your way back or something. What, what, tell us what that was. Yeah, I was a childhood reg, uh, exile to Florida. So I was born in Eastern Mass. Um, my family moved to Florida when I was only three to um, be with my grandparents, my mother's parents who had moved down there and to like stay with them as they got older, as they needed care. My parents were looking for a bit of a something different. So they moved down there and I grew up down there. Um, and after they had, both my grandparents had passed away, um, it ends up being 11 years later. We moved back to Eastern Mass right before I started high school. What area so, of Eastern Mass, if I can ask? Fall River. So old Fall Reeve. The house we moved back to was uh, right around the corner from where Lizzie Borden is buried. There's a beautiful old courthouse, unless they've destroyed it, um, where they tried the Lizzie Borden case. I've been into Fall River quite a bit because uh, there's actually several courthouses there, but I digress. So for people who don't know Fall River, yeah, Lizzie Borden from there. Uh, Emerald. Emerald Lagasse. There's a very big Portuguese uh, yes. contingent there? I'm, yeah, I'm a quarter Portuguese. Um, I'm a, I'm even quarters, Portuguese, Polish, French, and English. And each of my grandparents was the first to marry outside of their nationality. So each of my grandparents was 100% Portuguese, Polish, French, English, and they each were the first to marry someone of a different nationality. So you are a rebel, you're, you're genetically a rebel. Yeah, just it, everybody, everybody pushing against the norms. There was a, when my Polish grandfather married my Portuguese grandmother, the, the priest actually asked him whether there was a problem and no good Polish girls in his neighborhood. <laughs> um, so, so this was, this was that, uh, that era back then. That, um, were did that have an effect on <clears throat> excuse me on you I, uh, or is it just a good cocktail story like did you did it impact you and the way your family lived their life at all i come from um a family where at least at least my parents to a very big degree we sort of blazed their own trail like they did a lot of things that weren't necessarily conventional. Um, they became my oldest brother. They became his guardians um, when he was 15 and they were only in their early thirties. So they, and they moved across the country to Florida and then moved back. And at every step of their lives, people were telling them that no one else is doing this and they were doing it. So I think that uh, that looks a lot of different ways, um, but that spirit of can do and make it happen and perseverance, I come from a good long line of that, and I feel pleased with that. You know, it's interesting over the last decade and some of the, especially the crazy political stuff that's been going on, I, I think people forget what I always felt was very American, which is exactly what you're talking about which is like, what rules? We're gonna, you know, we're gonna, it doesn't matter where you come from or what they said before, 
this is a restart button country. And what's interesting is how some people took, created their own mythology that this was their country and it was a very specific and narrow focus where a lot of us, I'm going to include myself in this, think of this as the restart country where it doesn't matter. You know, I live in an area where when I walk in the morning, every morning, the Statue of Liberty is literally on my walk. I mean, across a bunch of water. I don't, I'm not a swimmer, (laughs) not in this weather, but um, I always feel like, hey, people come from everywhere to be here. They're not white, Christian, fill in the blank. There are a wide variety of people from everywhere. So I think that's really interesting and clearly informs you because one of the things that you, when you talk about yourself, you embrace the fact that you're, you're not, uh, I don't know how to say it, that not a cookie cutter human being. Would that be a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I think so. I think um, we, we pick the labels that fit us or reject the ones that don't. And I think, Life is always sort of a process of defining and redefining how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen. Uh, where did you ultimately go to college? And then I know you have a graduate degree as well, but what, what choices did you make there? So I'm a UMass Amherst graduate. That's actually one of the things that drew me out to Western Massachusetts um, to be closer to my now husband, then partner, and to... Um, and I really liked UMass, so came out to Western Mass and stayed uh, the other Massachusetts. Um, really like it out here. I um, have a graduate degree from Southern New Hampshire University. Um, I did it online. I did zero residency, got my master's in English Lit. It was uh, a few years of just straight, continuous schooling while um working full-time and writing books under contract and leading a bunch of extracurricular programs and such. And so it was, it was a pretty intense time of my life. I wouldn't want to repeat it, but I made it through. I'm on the other side of it. You know, you and I had very different experiences across a lot of realms, but you went to a, you know, people don't, who don't know Massachusetts, UMass Amherst is a state school. And sometimes, like in New York, when people say state school, there's a, it can either be derogatory, like, oh, that's that party school somewhere upstate, or something different. You know, UMass Amherst is one of the best colleges in the whole country. Forget Massachusetts. And for people who don't know that, they should look it up. Uh, in the same way that California has a great state school system. And again, I'm sure there's some party schools there. My wife, I I talk about my wife a lot on this podcast. I should have her on. She went to Berkeley, which for people who don't know, Cal Berkeley is an awesome school um, and has the benefit of being pretty close to San Francisco, a beautiful place to go. Um, And as you said, Western Massachusetts and Eastern Massachusetts could not be more different. It's a lot like Long Island, New York, Jersey versus Albany, Schenectady, Rensselaer, or Binghamton, I mean, if you know these areas. Um, Western Mass is just beautiful. Can I just say that without offending anyone anywhere? Like, is that accurate in your experience? Yeah, I I love it out here. Every time um, my husband and I would play with considerations of like, would we like to move? Where might we want to move? We keep coming back to just how much we like this area. It's it's not perfect. It's got a lot of problems. Um, It's not... Most of Western Mass is not nearly as diverse as I wish it were. Um, But I think in terms of climate, in terms of scenery, um, in terms of academic opportunities, it's it's a pretty great place to be. I love that you have a double life. And I'm just gonna say it. Um, And what I mean by that is you're not the only one. I know a lot of people who are in education, either high school or or down to elementary school, but they also write romance or they write other forms of genre fiction. And we had a very brief interaction before the podcast where I told you I used to work as a literary agent and I represented a lot of romance writers and some erotica people and others. Um, I assume that you have to do certain things to 
keep your lives divided and I don't want to invade that space. But is that something that A, you have to negotiate and B, what kind of advice do you have for other writers who are looking to, not that there's anything to be ashamed of in writing anything, in my opinion, even if it's letters to forum for Penthouse Magazine, like Mm -hmm. write what you want to write. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you also have to be mindful of other people's considerations and not just walk into, you know, uh, a china shop and start swinging a baseball bat. So with that all being said, can you talk about your experience? Because I think that would be really helpful to people. Sure. Um, I've been very deliberate over the years with keeping my, um, my work professional life and my author professional life very separate. Um, by, you don't cross the streams to use some Ghostbusters terminology. So that has a number of limitations. It means I'm not doing any marketing or book signing where I live. And that's a big hindrance in a lot of ways. It means I'm not doing personal appearances Mm -hmm. where I am. Um, The expectations, I'm I'm a high school teacher. Um, I don't want my students discovering me or reading my books. Like it is very much when they're graduated and they're well off into the world. um, That's a different story. But I think it's important to to keep these aspects of my life separate. Um, And there's a lot of holdover puritanical mindset about teachers. There are teachers who've been fired for posting a picture of themselves on the beach in a bikini on their personal Instagram. I know that's insane. um, Teachers who were disciplined for um, a student saw them at a bar having a beer and there were these are all morality. legal activities, by the way. Yeah, it's not like they saw them because they sold them weed at a Pink Floyd concert, right. showing my age. But these are people engaging in legal adult activities. Anyway, sorry. Yes, in places where those activities are appropriate, they're not drinking a beer in the school parking lot. Like that's not what we're talking about. Um, but there were morality clauses in teacher contracts well into the late 1900s, like I think up till 1990 in a lot of places. And I think that that's, uh, there's a lot of factors at play there with our, our puritanical roots as a country, the general sex negativity of our culture and our entertainment and such. So I think like, know where you're teaching, like know your environment, do everything you can to keep, um, you know, CYA, cover your ass, keep things separate um, and be careful who you talk to. Like it's, um, it's going to limit your abilities to market in certain ways. And um, ultimately it's about protecting yourself as a professional in all the various ways. I wish it didn't need to be that way. Um, but it does. And so to ignore that, I think, is um, is foolish. And I'm very fortunate to live in a really liberal area and to um, to just be surrounded by people who I believe are, are like minded. Not everybody has that um, has that privilege. So I think people just have to to take what precautions they can and just be smart and uh, secretive as much as possible. You know, I have. Ah, I have so many things I want to talk to you about just out of that. And and we're going to, because it's my show. Um, uh, You do reviews of sex toys on your website. Mm -hmm. And you, I I haven't, sorry, I'm getting a lot of noise. I'm on the first floor temporarily. It's a whole conversation. But um, uh, when it comes to toys and, I don't know how else to express it. And if I'm saying it wrong, please tell me. You also talk about kink. And Mm -hmm. I know there's some stuff about rope play. Um, There's some very famous books out by the name of the author is a Japanese name. And I'm totally blanking on it because I've seen the books. You may know what I'm talking about. Thank you. And uh, I may be wrong. I I actually think that's a pseudonym. But um, I'm sure. But what I really appreciated about reading what you had to say about these subjects is first and foremost, you talk about consent and I believe you talk about boundaries also. And anyone who's ever been a part of or adjacent to that community, one of the great things to respect about people who are serious 
in those domains, let's say, is a sense of respect for everyone and that that respect must, as a result, include consent and boundaries. And it feels a lot like the world at large could use a whole conversation about respect and boundaries. Um, and I think that writers who come from that perspective and then write interesting characters going through sexual and other experiences really focus on bringing that to the fore. Now, uh, I know you do those things and I know that you um, have a steampunk erotic book that's out. I want people to know about it because I'm all about moving product on the show, but I also awesome. think it's really important for people to know these things exist. There might be someone listening who doesn't even know what steampunk is because there have been ebbs and flows in that genre in terms of its popularity. So I'm giving you an assignment right now, Teach, if you don't mind. I'd love to, for you to share with people what steampunk is and then how you work your craft of erotica, specifically in this book, uh, yeah, in in that domain. So uh, there you go. Can you can you enlighten right. us? Yeah, I can take that on. So steampunk is a very broad umbrella term um, for a form of retrofuturism, and retrofuturism is usually referred to like using um, technology of the past to envision a future from that perspective. So steampunk often encompasses a Victorian era aesthetic with steam-based technology if our technologies evolved along the lines of steam as opposed to traditional electricity, what we might think of. So um, there's all different uh sub-genres of that that I am not nearly as well versed in as other people are, um, whether it's gas lamp fantasy or like, like there's all these cool subcategories. Clockworks. Think, there's a lot of clockwork, like clockwork. people with like, who've had an amputation, but their arm is now mechanical and far more powerful than a normal arm because it's steam powered or clock powered or things like that. Right. Does that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, one of the uh, one of the important other elements is like the punk aspect of it. There's an anti-establishment mentality that tends to run through steampunk. It is not always dystopia, although it frequently overlaps with dystopia and rebelling against authority, surveillance, government. The uh, the cat the character who's a, a revolutionary of sorts that frequently figures into into steampunk. You know, a lot of uh, body from, modification. Yeah, I, I think that one of the more popular and I think successful. It was a two movie series thus far. Robert Downey Jr. was in a new envisionment of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, with um, I'm blanking on his co-star. Thank you. And um, they are not unattractive, gentlemen. There's also some, there's a little bit of homoeroticism between the two of them in the second movie, it, or it seems like that because they seem like a bit of a couple in certain ways. There's a certain intimacy. It's nowhere near, nobody's taken their shirts off. Well, Robert Downey Jr. is in a couple of scenes, but it's not that. But there's some humor and some... I don't know, some hints at something there. But it, it is, I found them to be very entertaining. Um, I did want to backtrack for a second. First of all, thank you for sharing that. You know, I've traveled across the country a bunch of times because I've done tons of book tours back when we actually had bookstores in this country. Um, and I find this country's relationship with sex to be one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Because we use it to sell, there is not, you know, I'm watching Miley Cyrus do a music video where she's as close to naked as she can be on TV. I've seen her actually do a magazine where she is, in fact, naked. Um, but you will hear people decrying that there's too much sex in our culture while also noting that there are porn star stores, excuse me, all along Route 70 and 80, which crisscross this country, 
in Iowa, in Nebraska, in, you know, name, uh, name the Midwestern state where they decry those New York values where we're too permissive, but there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there or more. It, it's not as puritanical as they want us to think it is, but there's this tremendous, it just feels like there's an incredibly unhealthy relationship with these things. Oh, I have a lot to think about that. I have a lot of of comments on that. Before you get into that, when I travel in Europe with my European friends, they seem to have a somewhat different relationship with sex. There are sex shops on the street where there are other shops. Don't get me wrong. It's not like my Swiss friends are just running around topless or, you you know, um, I mean, they're pretty buttoned up in Northern Europe too, but it's just a very different different vibes. So yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Because I get that you would be someone who'd want to talk about it. So yeah, please. I think about this a lot because um, we have an abstinence only perspective as a country on um, sex, not just sex education. And much like sex education, if the only culture you have around sex is that it's wrong and bad and sinful, there's no degrees of safety or intelligence related to engaging in the act. Everything becomes viewed as equally bad. And of course, I'm I'm speaking very broad strokes. I think there's a lot of movements for sex positivity. And I think that this is um, like, there's there's a lot of straight white culture wrapped up in this that becomes different when you look at queer culture, when you look at other um, like non-white relationships with sex and sexuality. So I'm talking like a lot of like straight white heterosexual America right here, cisgendered America, this sense that um, when sex is shameful, um, then what you have are porn stores with that are unclean or that are fitting all the stereotypes of a porn store. You don't see the sex positive shops run by women, run by queer people, run by trans people who are working to um, remove, take take those aspects out of the closet as it were and make people feel better about their own sexuality. Um, sex is often being used as a tool to control people. It's how we sell and we, I think part of why it's so effective for sales is human instinct and also the shame and the drive related to it. Like the relationship with our drinking age and the way when it's tantalizing, people want it and they extrapolate that. You just tie that into late stage capitalism and you have this cocktail of really miserable, sexually repressed people who don't have a healthy outlet through their sexuality. And I think that it ties into so many different factors of um, religion and media and and all of those things. It's It's all created this perfect storm of sexual misery in this country that I hope we're moving away from. Well, you know, as you talk about this, there are two things I wanted to share. Um, one is I was in a fairly long, fairly sexless marriage and thought I could somehow make that work. And um, I think that I was living on an intellectual level, but ultimately our bodies betray us. <laughs> I mean, we just can't, I don't, People who can do abstinence, God bless you. That's not my thing. And I just can't. And I'm so happily, without embarrassing my wife or doing a TMI for everybody, look, sex is just too important to me to not have it. And so one of the reasons my marriage works is because that's a great aspect of our life. Um, And I live in Brooklyn, New York, which thinks it's cooler than it is, but it's still pretty cool. And we have at least one really cool sex shop, which you go in and it's all, I think it's run by women. Certainly I've never seen a man behind the counter or at least a cis man behind the counter and their products are out displayed, lots of labels. You have a question, they will answer it. They will take out the product and show it to you. There's no mystery. They'll tell you how it works why it's good, why you might prefer something else. They treat you like a freaking adult. And, and it is so refreshing. And no one snickers at anyone who comes in like they're too old. They're, I mean, you could be too young and that would be inappropriate, obviously. Yes. But like no one is questioning 
how you two are coming into the store together or more than two. I mean, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they have classes on various things there. And those classes are treated with no strange charge on them. That's the best word I can use for it. You know, there's no extra on that other than a, a literal charge for coming in like $10 or whatever for, let's just call it a beginner's ropes class for people who don't know what that is. Uh, it's, I don't want to get lost in that cul-de-sac. <laughs> you can look up eroticism and ropes, I guess. I'm, there's things you can do. We, we do another show. There's probably shows. You have a podcast, actually, right? Are you, or is that on hiatus? Or? It's stalled right now. It's on. It's on indefinite hiatus. Um, things have been have been pretty hectic for a while, but there are a bunch of episodes online for people who haven't heard it. It's it's come and play. What and, it's um, called? Come and play. Come and play. And how do they? So, I, I'm walking into it. How do they spell it? Is it C O M E? Yes. Thank you. Oof, I, I have was... strong feelings about the spelling of come in text. Well, people could not I'm, I'm, tell me, you know, I, I don't I don't want any artifice here. So why what are your strong feelings on the spelling of it? Um, I personally, I don't like the I don't like alternative spellings. I like the spelling C-O-M-E. I think mm -hmm. C-U-M as a as a uh, spelling is um, if I'm reading it, it takes me out of a scene. Um, but it is, I guess, like in everyone's. Every, there's no official style manual for it. People have their own consistencies within their writing. A lot of people use C-U-M for the noun and C-O-M-E for the verb. Um, We're going to ask just, Ben Dreyer. Yeah. Ben Dreyer, who's been a guest on this show and has a best-selling book, Ben Dreyer's uh, English. Um, I'll find a way. People can follow him on Twitter. Like, they can follow us. And I'll talk more about that later. Um, we, we should ask him. I'm sure... He will be appalled that I asked him, but maybe he wouldn't be. You know, he's an out gay man. We've talked about that on the show. Um, uh, okay. Well, anyway, thanks for telling us that. Um, everyone's got a pet peeve. And I think that sometimes those peeves are just a quirk. And sometimes there's a very practical reason. You know, it takes you out of it. As we're talking about it, I, th I think that spelling makes me feel like we're reading porn. And we're not reading something that, you know, when, when I say porn, uh, we're going to, we're going here. Porn and erotica are not the same thing. And I'm sure you get asked about this or have a whole bunch of times. I know I did when I was a literary agent. And I feel like people um, don't have respect for erotica if they think it is porn. What I, I'd love to know what your thoughts are and in your own words. So I don't, I mean, after all, I have you as a guest on the show. I might as well ask you some questions. Oh, yeah. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. So I write predominantly erotic romance. And um, I'll start with that because it's an interesting hybrid. So for something to be a romance, it needs to end in a happily ever after or a happy for now for the primary people involved. The romance needs to be optimistic and convincing. In an erotic romance versus just versus steamy contemporary, the relationship develops in a key part through the sex. So the sex is not the only thing, but you couldn't take all the sex out and have the character development make sense in terms of the relationship. Um, I've also written steamy contemporary. I had an FF, so um, Women Loving Women romance come out from um, Karina Press last summer called Hairpin Curves. It's steamy contemporary. There is very hot sex in it, but I would say that the sex isn't as integral to the relationship as other aspects. Just so but people know, FF is female, female. And I know you yep. said Women Loving Women, but just for people who are new to this whole thing, um, oh, yeah. you know, you're not that long ago, people would tell you, well, you can't have a lesbian or a female, female. Nobody's going to buy that. And I mean, literally of publishing. Right. And, and I think, uh, sorry for the sideways here. Technology has actually helped queer romance. I think because you, if you lived in Iowa, you could not walk around with a queer romance in your hand and you'd have to go to the big city to buy it probably. But now you can download it on your device and no one knows what you're reading. And that yeah. for, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, I miss bookstores, whatever, but that is a really great thing. Anyway, sorry. So 
hairpin curves still available, I'm sure. Oh yeah, hairpin curves is indeed still available. Um, but most of my books are erotic romance, and I also do write erotica, although I haven't. Um, none of it's published yet, but I am planning to at some point. Um, release some erotic series. Anyone who follows my newsletter, um, you, I do have like an erotic short for people who sign up for that. And with erotica, it's about a person's sexual development and sexual growth. Um, they could be about it could be about kink, but it doesn't have to be. It's often some sort of sexual awakening, discoveries about themselves. There's no romance inherent in it. Sometimes there's not even another partner in it. Um, but there's, but it's focused on the self versus the relationship, and I would say that's the um, that's the key difference right there. Now, when do you offend yourself when someone says, "Oh, you write porn," or do you feel like that's an opportunity to educate somebody, or, or I mean, what what happens for you? So it depends on a lot on tone. Oh, of um, course, sorry, of course, and. I don't, um, sometimes I don't want to bother. Like I can tell if someone wants to be like, do they say that excitedly? Cause like, well, I mean, I would define it differently, but I also don't have any problems with porn. Um, I mean, the porn industry itself has problems, but with pornography as a, like, as a, a thing, um, I don't have any problems with it. I think it's different than what I write, but I don't think it's inherently better or worse. Um, if someone wants to just dismiss what I write, then they're probably not my target audience anyway. And I would usually just let it go because, you know, pearls before swine and all of that. I don't always want to engage in that discussion. Um, sometimes I would feel differently, possibly if it's a public discussion, like something happening on Twitter, because then I don't feel like I'm trying to educate the person talking as much as anyone else who's reading in. Yeah, that's great. And you also you know, it's not just educate, you can make few people feel really good about themselves while answering these questions. There's always someone out there who thinks there's something wrong with them or they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And if you can be of service to them, that's such a great gift. I also love your comment about pearls before swine. Um, when I was learning about boundaries in my life, um, I also learned that not everybody's entitled to all your gifts. And um, and some people will not appreciate them and you'll actually devalue your own gifts in your own eyes when you're like, look at this awesome thing and they crap on it. And then it's like, you start to question your own valuing of what you love. It's just not, it, it, it was such a great lesson for me to wait and see if someone's trustworthy enough to share the things that I love. So I really appreciate you sharing that too, because I, what I love about this show is I'm hoping that somehow someone's listening to this and it's like, oh, I'm okay. Or, or, oh, that's a great idea. I don't need to subject myself to someone else's anger or whatever it is. So thank you. Um, Thanks. Uh, Can I add one thing on that? Please. I also think it's important as a writer that you are not for all markets. <laughs> like, like you don't have to write for everyone. Um, people talk about, you know, it's writing to trends and writing to market. That's, that's different, meeting market expectations. But a lot of people won't like your books. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your books. Man, like, I, I love this. so important. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, look, I'm a yes. lawyer now. I'm a lawyer now for the most part. And a lot of what I do is showbiz related um, contracts for sometimes with agented or unagented writers, either way. And, and also film producers, directors, actors, all, all, all across showbiz. And there are some people that I should not be their lawyer, um, whether it's because it's not a thing that I handle, like it's immigration or bankruptcy or something. But, but there's also some people we meet each other. I've had some very famous almost clients and them not hiring me was great for both of us and some people can't understand it until you've been there <laughs> until you extricate yourself from a, a a relationship that was created that never should have been created and i'm an expert on that i've divorced twice now in marriages <laughs> so i understand the 
extricating yourself and how it can be expensive and unhappy or unpleasant. Um, doesn't have to be, but it can be. But professionally, yeah, like there's just, you're not for everybody. Even the most successful people are not for everybody. Yeah. If you ever want to feel better, just go read some one-star reviews on like really famous, universally loved books. They're not universally loved, but that's okay. Like it's, it's okay for people to have different tastes. And um, it's also really freeing as a writer to know that if you can figure out your brand, if you can figure out like what you love to write, you can branch beyond that. Um, but you have the core of like what shows up in all your work. Your audience is going to follow you. There are the people who also like the things you like. And um, it's, it's comforting for me as I, you know, second guess every book I write and think everyone will hate this and it's the worst thing I've ever written to remind myself that eventually it'll be good and the people who like it will like it. And that's, that's it. I try and tell myself that. You know, it's interesting on some levels, part of your brand is that you're not normal. I, I mean, in certain ways, <laughs> if I can be blunt, Fair. but you're incredibly normal. I mean, you have the same doubts, <laughs> you know, but in terms of like, of course you doubt yourself. I, I, any person who's really good goes through that process, especially creative people. It's the people who don't doubt themselves who scare the crap out of me. <laughs> it's know? the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> exactly. Hey, oh. Can you explain to our listeners? Because I've heard that before and I'm not going to. Well, it's basically if the people who don't need to do. Go ahead, please. I'll try and I'll try and say it the best I can. You can add to it. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically that the people who are um, like part of being really incompetent is often not realizing that you're really incompetent. And so if you like doubt yourself, you're probably okay. It's just the blind confidence that you need to worry about. Um, There's a show. Some. Yeah, yeah, some recent politicians or oh no, I was gonna go Yates. Um the, the with the second coming. Um I don't remember oh. the exact quote, but the 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 best have lost all certainty or something like that. I should look it up. The but anyway, Falcon, it always makes the me think of Dunning Kruger. I think the Falcon was, cannot hear the Falconer, the yeah. Widening the, the widening gyre. Okay, yeah. kids, this is where we're now doing our PhD <laughs> in English literature, right before your eyes. Can I just say, by the way, that not only did I know this stuff from my education, because I'm crazy well-read, but I have to admit that it is also referred to in a detective series set in the Boston area that I was a huge fan of, a guy named Robert Parker, who wrote Spencer, uh, which is a series of detective novels about a guy who was an ex-cop and a boxer who's incredibly well-read and a great cook. And his best friend is sort of a criminal named Hawk, who was in the French Foreign Legion as a kid. This is, by the way, may not be your cup of tea, but I fell in love with this character. And the character is so well read and he refers to a lot of things that I would then look up. <laughs> you know, anything from uh, that poem about Ozymandias, look upon my works in despair, you know, like these are good entry level college introduction to English literature kind of references, because Mr. Parker taught English at Boston University. And, you know, English teachers and teachers and English people, they walk among us. They are the cool people. Um, in my we humble opinion. We can't help it. We can't help throwing in those illusions. By the way, it is the best last lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's the wow. And, um, and it's accurate in my experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how, during the pandemic, you've been teaching via Zoom, right? Yeah. Do you, you know, I feel like I've had brain fog, not as a result of having COVID, although I did have it last year. But um, just sometimes I, all I want is to mix myself an adult beverage and watch another Netflix thing with my wife. Um, I'm really great at making a Negroni almost blindfolded at this point <laughs> or an Aperol spritz. Um, 
and I've rewatched Ted Lasso about three times now. It's next on my list. I haven't watched it yet, but we. Uh, I know I'm going to love it. Yeah. Well, what you know, I have no goal for this episode or this podcast in general, other than to give voice to people who I find interesting, and I think other people find interesting. Um, so yeah, lots of women, lots of people of color, LGBTQ. Are there any of those areas that you want to talk about? You know, hey, you're a woman. I don't know if you noticed this. And you I live am. in a you live in a misogynistic culture. Also, I'm sure you've noticed that as well. And it you've spoken about it. Um, this has been a really interesting time. I'm 59, like I said, and I've learned more in this last year or two for a guy who's supposed to be educated, has a law degree. I've like been in a lot of prisons. And only really have seen certain things recently because you can't help but see them. Like it's like it. my eyes have been opened by some pretty horrible things and by some brilliant and lovely people. Um, what, what do you have to say? Have you had that experience? Have you been like, oh, come on, Eric, I've been living this crap. I know this. I'm amazed you just woke up. But thank Welcome. I mean, some people might have that attitude. And by the way, yeah, it's I mean, not I, like I've been a Republican or anything. I mean, you know, I have been doing public defender work for over 30 years. So it's not like I have just been some kind of corporate whatever. But I'm just saying I've been woken up even more. It's been shocking the systemic quality of the misogyny and racism. Anyway, yeah, preaching but, to the yeah. choir. I've, I, but I've definitely had my own like awareness and, and awakenings as it were, like I'm a, I'm a white woman and that will always color the ways in which I see the world. Um, and my, you know, well-meaning white woman perspective, um, it wasn't really until I started purposefully following people different from me on Twitter, I would say, and just shutting up. Like that was, that was something I read somewhere, somewhere that's just like learn things and shut up. And I was like, okay, I can do that to not insert myself into all of these things that I don't understand to not always trying to be like, no one needs devil's advocate. The devil does not need an advocate. Stop playing devil's advocate. Um, but just to go in and, and see what these people were experiencing, what these um, authors are experiencing. I think one of the big, big, um, issues that like brought a bunch to light was um, in RWA, which is the Romance Writers of America, um, at the very end of 2019, um, really like it, it's been something that's been ongoing, the issues of systemic racism within the organization. And that peaked with um, an, like a there's a lot of blogs on the topic and I don't feel like I do the whole thing justice. Oh, that's but, fine. And people can look it up. There is an Asian author whose name escapes me. Um, Milan. Thank you. And there were issues about how one gets nominated for a Rita, which is sort of the Oscars of the romance writing world. Yes. And I just want to throw in, by the way, for people who don't know, you've won a Rita, which is I not an easy thing to do. And no one should mistake that that's, an incredible achievement. I've been to a bunch of Rita ceremonies for my former life. They're fun. And the people who write this stuff are passionate, brilliant people. We could do hours on how people don't even understand what romance writing is. We're not going to oh, do yeah. that right now. But yes, what you're talking about, there was an incredible entitled white woman experience in the RWA that caused such a major division that numerous people have left the romance writers of America. Yeah. It's caused an entire, like an entire shift. And, um, and it's stuff that to be totally transparent, um, black women authors have been saying for years and, um, you know, haven't been listened to. And as more people have realized these issues. Like it's ex it's exhausting to be experiencing, I'm sure, to be experiencing these sort of systemic issues and feel like you're fighting for something and nobody's listening. And it's not 
like new because I just learned about it. It's been happening. But I think that right. the whole industry has has had a real reckoning. And so I've tried to stay um, teachable. I've tried to stay open-minded and to do my own research on things and recognize where I've fallen short and try to do better. And I think that's I think that's all that's what we can do is like own where we've caused harm. Um, and that that whole idea of um, intent doesn't really matter. And that was a hard one for me to get my head around that I've never intended harm. Like my whole life is just full of good intentions. And ultimately, like it doesn't matter if I didn't mean to step on your foot. If I step on your foot, your foot hurts and my intentions don't matter. So yeah. trying to get to that point and and grow and and grow as an author and as a person and we're just always trying to grow. <laughs> you know, so I, I, be. I I I'm I have a very similar experience of my work with this. You know, I I did some stupid things. Uh, I had a good friend of mine, a woman of color. I I tweeted something after Serena Williams got upset at a call, and I tweeted something. She goes, "Oh, sweetie, you need to take that down." She goes, I need to talk to you about why that's a terrible thing to write, which I thought was innocuous. I mean, I wasn't using any bad language or what I considered a racist attitude, but I was so wrong. I just, I was wrong. And we had a conversation. I had her on this podcast and we talked about the fact that, thank God I have good friends because she could have just said, oh, another a-hole. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. But we've been friends for a long time and we actually lived together not romantically, but as friends in a common yeah. situation. And I was really grateful for that. Then other times, you know, I've stepped in it. I've responded, well, not, I'm a guy and I didn't, you know, like not all guys are. And then I just like, yeah. eventually you go, oh no, that's that's not the answer people need right now. And if you're right. not really helping and you're kind of showing your ass a little bit to use yeah. the phrase. So I stopped doing that um, and I'm doing, you know, hey, this is the podcast I'm hoping. I think we're, man, we are all just trying our, you know, I'm going to throw a little Ram Das out there. Like we're all just tr- tr- children walking each other home. Um, probably paraphrasing, but I, like that. Um, I think that's good. And I also, I don't remember his name, but there is a famous guru uh, when he was asked, how should we treat others? His response is, well, first, you have to realize there are no others. Oh, I like that. I like that, too. I don't always see that in every moment of my life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm a, I'm living a 21st century American experience. It's not the same yeah. as being on a mountaintop. You know, there's an ex- I'm full of expressions today. You're bringing it out of me. It's one thing to be enlightened on the mountaintop. It's another thing to be enlightened in the marketplace. And, you know, and I think that, uh, well, anyway, enough of my aphorisms. They're not really needed. (laughs) Um, What are, what are you working on now that you're excited about? (laughs) So it's not a book. Um, It is um, my, uh, well, my husband and I are um, hoping to build our own log home um, ourselves. Awesome. Can I, I actually, have a cousin who has a log cabin like mansion in Colorado. So oh, nice. But I, I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I've seen lots of no, people log home. It's a box. <laughs> yeah, I, I took um, I took the course at the Log Home Builders of America like eight years ago. Log Home Builders Association teaches people how to build log homes just with their own with their own hands and tools. And um, it's been a ways in coming. And so we're we're tr- trying to make that happen. So that's been pretty consuming in my life right now in the midst of Zoom teaching and uh, the transition back to in-person and the this COVID, post-COVID society. Um, so I decided to take a few months where I was just not going to write and not lie to myself about going to write, like just just not writing stuff. Yeah, um, how how yeah. much do you see writers beat up on themselves for no reason? Including oh, gosh, you. all the time. All the time. I've gotten better about it. Um, I'm a little more Zen than I was, but uh, I think there's, there's a lot of, um, I think because writing and many creative endeavors are so individual and um, like personalized and there's no set roadmap, we who like roadmaps try to create them. 
And it ends with a lot of really well-meaning but harmful advice like writers write every day and writers finish everything they start. And I think those are like useful tools, but like they're like training wheels on a bike. You know, you you eventually realize that you just got to pedal and whatever that looks like for you, you've got to do. So I recently tweeted something like, oh, I'm sorry. I recently tweeted something like, you know, you could be writing when you're sitting on a park bench looking at ducks and then watching three dogs go by. That could be part of your writing day. Just throwing, I'm sorry. Would you, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. It's okay. I was going to start talking again if you went on too long. So it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. And by the way, I suspect that I already feel like you're the kind of person that if we hung out and had coffee, this would be a very long conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'll have to have me back sometime down the road and we'll talk. We'll we'll hone in on a topic. Um, Absolutely. But I want to talk about Uh, the, the, the log cabin for a second. Um, I also want to talk about what I'm going to be writing next. Yeah, but I, I do want to know how long you've been married and at what point in the relationship, did, like, how does that, if somebody in that relationship doesn't want to make the log cabin, or do you both look like log cabin? Awesome. <laughs> like, I just can't even imagine if my wife said to me, we're going to build a log cabin. That is a, that's a, that's a watershed moment in a relationship, in my thoughts. Maybe not in New York. Like, what was that like? Are you looking off camera? Well, is he right there? He's not. This is my thinking face. <laughs> oh, gotcha. So we've been together our whole adult lives. Um, we've been married for 12 years and we've been together for 23 years. Whoa. So like we've been to, we've been together for a long time. That's awesome. Um, we've, we've grown up together in a manner of speaking. So um I think that one thing that helps is that um, I'm the I'm the steamroller, and he's like the one shoveling the coal. Those I know you don't put coal in a steamroller, but you got to roll with me here. This is I'm, a first draft. I, this is you got not. It. I'm not judging you. Steam I'm engine. On board. I saw it. So, so um, when I first went to take the class, I said, "Listen, like I'm not going to spend this money and do this if you're not on board." Like whenever this comes and he's like, you gotta, will you have faith in this? He's like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Cause I'm the one who took the class. So I've been the driver and he is supportive and um, thoughtful and gives like measured, um, (laughs) measured responses. So he is on board and very clear that I'm the, I'm the one pushing ahead and he is supporting along the way. Got it. I have been, I have a vision of Walden, you know, in eastern Massachusetts, oh, specifically yeah. Concord. The I think it was a log cabin or certainly a little cabin, a wooden hut on Walden Pond is of course where Henry Thoreau wrote a strange little book that most people haven't really read that I did, which has all sorts of things like a description of a battle between two ant armies as well as like a, a food list. It's a very strange book, people. Like, trust me. But and it's I, also, it, it's fun to remember too that his mother and sister like did all his laundry and, and brought him food the entire time he was went out in the woods to live deliberately. Yeah, by the way, his out in the woods is like a 15 minute hike from downtown Concord. It is, it is not that far into the woods. It's a very, it's a ridiculous notion. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah, let's talk about, because we're going to run out of time. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about what you're working on writing next. Well, my next thing is, so the project that I've like kicked around and done some groundwork on, but haven't fully pitched, it's my next thing to go to the agent, is um, my wonderful agent. Uh, Who is your agent? Hernandez. Thank you. Streets Hernandez at um, Andrea Brown Literary. I actually Love know her. her. She used to be somewhere else. I don't have to say where. Yes. But I know her. Else. I know her. Lovely person. Yes, she's been with me since the beginning. And so um, my next project is historical FF romance um, between WAX, women in the Women's Army Corps, in World War II. So queer women in World War II. And my first book, um, They Are Pigeoneers. So they train the carrier pigeons to go overseas during the war. 
Um, it's a really niche field. It's a field where there were women part of it. I also really love birds. We've just been referring to it as the pigeon book, <laughs> but it's, um, they're not all, it's not a trilogy of pigeon ear books, but there's a cryptography and mechanics. And I've read like everything that the, that's been published on the women's army corps from the government and just done a ton of research. And it's, it's so fun. It's also really overwhelming. So I that's part that of why I set it aside. What's awesome is you're not going to get publishers coming back with, Oh God, not another female, female not another queer pigeon, pigeon book for world war two. <laughs> do they, I, I remind you of an old joke where I would say, do they have to be pigeons? That's a terrible old joke, which we don't have to do now. People, if you hate the joke and you know it, or you don't know the joke, write to me at isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place where you can leave comments and whatnot. And I will tell you that joke. I'm not doing it now because we're it's beneath us. Um, you, I want people to know how to get your newsletter and also how to find you and all the things that you have to offer. All right. So um, my newsletter is eliawinters.com slash newsletter. So it's pretty easy. Um, my my home base for everything is eliawinters.com. E-L-I-A, winters like the season, plural, dot com. There's just uh, one of me, but plural winters. There'll be a link on is that really legal.com where, you know, right. when people can go to the podcast, there'll also be a short bio of you, a picture. And they'll click on the link and they can get more about you. Uh, if they want to just, if they want to shortcut it all and find you on Twitter, where would they go? At Elia Winters. I'm You're on making Instagram it easy. I am Elia Winters author on Instagram. Um, and um, Elia Winters on TikTok. So I, I, I love TikTok. I've only posted a few videos, but getting more into it. Cool. I am uh, frankly afraid of, uh, TikTok. Not, I, I embrace all technology. I just see the time suck that it will be. And my clients will be, how come you haven't handled this? I'll be like, wait, haven't you seen my last TikTok? Um, <laughs> it's just not what they want to hear. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? I could talk about so much. Um, I think... Um... I think we've covered a good range of things. It's been, it's been fun. I could deep dive any of these topics. I love talking about, um, I love talking about sex toy reviewing, which is far less glamorous than people think it is. I gotta um, ask, I gotta tell you something real quick because yeah. I wanna share this with people. I was on my honeymoon with my wife and that included visiting friends in Europe and staying in their homes, which is fantastic. And it was like, the first time I was at a friend's home in Basel, Switzerland, and we walked by their bedroom and I saw a pink box on the floor and I knew exactly what it was. And I just didn't even want to acknowledge it because we were given a tour of the house, of the apartment. And my wife saw it and she said, what's that? And then what happened was about a half hour of a conversation about sex toys, that one in particular, and those in general. By the way, it wasn't I was a little embarrassed. I'm always shocked by how much of a prude I still am. Having been <laughs> married three times, had a lot of different, and I mean different, relationships. And there was sex involved in many of them. And still, I get flustered and just prudish nature, whatever. We're not used to talking about it. Yeah. And I think, I think that you do us all a great service when you do bring it up for people. Um, and then uh, we were staying at another great friend's in Cologne, Germany. She let us have their bedroom, her bedroom rather. I'm asleep and I wake up and I swear I see her walk into our bedroom, go into her closet and leave. So the next morning I said, look, you didn't interrupt anything. We were sound asleep, but I had this weird thing like you were in the room. She goes, oh yeah, I had a headache. I couldn't sleep. So I just got my vibrator. <laughs> and then we learned all about her Hitachi. And it wasn't about her neck and shoulders. And I just think that it's really cool that we live in a time and I have friends who are totally cool about saying, oh, yeah, well, I just like this is not I don't know if women use this expression. I just rub one out. I just needed to. It was work. It was fine. <laughs> I got to sleep. Um, and I find being able to talk about that in a way that nobody. I don't know. It's not about anything other than what it is. Yeah, that's really helpful. I feel you. I really appreciate you for doing that. I've read your reviews. 
Uh, and I'm like, that's a thing I'm not going to use because my anatomy is not, not supported by that. Yeah, it's not, by, by the way, men, there's a lot of things that are not for us. Okay, we're all learning that. Got to keep learning it. Not everything's about us. But I really appreciated how you, you know, talked about it. it I, I didn't have to use it to have an appreciation for it. You know, I think that was really Thanks. cool. Yeah, you're, by the way, great writing. Like, who would think? Like, I know it sounds weird, but I really enjoyed reading your review of a thing that I'm never going to use. I think that <laughs> said something you. about your writing. And I think that people should really uh, check you out. Witchers. I've had so much fun. I want to talk about tattoos, but oh, yeah. you're like out of time. Can you just tell me real quick, like, do you have a favorite tattoo and how many do you have? I have two tattoos. My favorite one um, is I have a big octopus on my People, shoulder. She's showing me um, on, on video. It is a really excellent octopus. Like that is really well done. And it, it goes he, from your shoulder all the way down to your elbow, practically your elbow. Um, it is right my, at the edge of a, sh a short sleeve shirt. Sometimes you see yeah. a little tentacle poking out. Yeah. It's, and it's what I like about it is it's um, it's not it's not a cartoon. It's not like cheerful or malevolent. It's just like it's like you. It's I, just matter of fact. Just matter. Of fact, I got to tell you, when I when I went to my uh, my artist to get it, I said I want um, realistic but not terrifying, cute but not cartoony, and he just nailed it. You did great work. That is a raptor laser. He has a tattoo shop in Salem. You can follow him on Instagram. His real name is not Raptor Laser, but Raptor Laser with a Z on Instagram. You could see his art. He's that's cool awesome. Stuff. And that's Salem, Massachusetts, back. right? Yes. Excellent. Um, thanks. I, I have seven. Um, this is a koi, which was designed by my friend Ellen. I can't really show it well. Oh, there we go. Ellen Murphy, who's been on this show um because nice. she is cool and she's a tattoo artist and she lives in the berkeley california area these days i think uh in any event thank you Ellie winters for being on is that really legal i had such a great time meeting you and i look forward to speaking with you sometime soon thanks for thanks being a on. bunch i had a wonderful time thanks for having me Well, there you have it. Ilya Winters, you can find her at iliawinters.com. You can find her on Twitter. And um, I'm sure you enjoyed her as much as I did. So talented, so fun. And you can subscribe to the show. It's a great idea. You can leave me messages at isthatreallylegal.com. Um, you can go check out all the other podcasts episodes that are there um, get Abe's muffins they taste great and they won't kill you um, they are allergen free you take care of yourself did you get the shot did you get the second one are you wearing the mask come on we're almost there it's going to be a great summer I look forward to talking with you soon take care bye bye